according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4 will be our starting text this morning. Matthew chapter 4. We will conclude episode number 7 today on the first preaching tour of Galilee. And actually, we will have time to spare where I want to be able to follow up on some aspects of the kingdom that I think we have touched on over the past two weeks that uh, I think if we just drop it and not follow up, um, then we're not doing ourselves any favors. And I I really do want to follow up on some items that we've touched on and uh, try to explain in a more clear fashion what the anticipated kingdom was to a Jewish audience in the first century. As uh, John the Baptizer first said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As Jesus Christ himself employed the kingdom of heaven language in his own ministry, particularly early, where we are now, uh, I think if we don't take a look at it, that uh, we're not getting the full picture that we need to get in uh, understanding these early chapters. So we will spend some time this after or this morning in uh, with some kingdom issues. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word the opportunity that we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, we ask for your hedge of protection around us. There's been uh, folks around and uh, coming in and looking for things. Father, again, we pray for your protection upon us in these proceedings. Uh, Father, protect us from any harm that uh, others might seek to bring. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There was a shooting last week, too, in a local church, not around here, thankfully. But uh, you just never know when uh, a strange person will come in and do what they want to do. All right. That's why the person posted back there at the recording desk has cameras that he watches. Front door, back door. And uh, well, we typically have Gary in the evenings as our back row enforcer back there. So, All right. This first preaching tour of Galilee really has five points of study. We left off with the fourth one. I'll just run through them. Here this morning, we talked about the responsibilities that Jesus was juggling, uh, four of them in particular, his family life, his uh, disciple training, the public teaching, but then the most important one of all was the prayer ministry. And uh, we developed those out of, uh, really, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the three uh, accounts that we're looking at here in this episode, the first preaching tour of Galilee, as well as for the family responsibilities, we brought in a correlating passage from the Gospel of John. In the second area of study, we highlighted the prayer ministry, that prayer was his most, uh, is how he started the day. And we gave you seven principles on prayer, uh, labeled subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And uh, if you missed those, that was two weeks ago, and I would encourage you to, uh, and we did a little bit of it last week, would encourage you to uh, follow up on that material. Thirdly, we observed the Capernaum crowds, not so much here in the Matthew passage. I asked you to turn to Matthew 4, but over in Luke 4, we saw the crowds. Um, Mark also mentioned the crowds in Mark chapter 1, trying to keep him local. In other words, wanting to keep him tied in to Capernaum, whereas his ministry was not designed to be um, uh, so limited or so tied down to a particular location. God uses uh, roaming type ministries in the sense of evangelists, missionaries, others that will uh, it- that have itinerant speaking ministries from place to place. And then he uses fixed ministries, for example, uh, guys like uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon's grandfather actually pastored some 60 years in the same local church. See, that's in my mind ideal, you know, as far as that goes. Uh, but Jesus was not to be tied to Capernaum. And uh, his necessity, the driving force which drove him into the wilderness to be tempted, is now driving him out of Capernaum to travel amongst these other locations here in Galilee. The fourth point, the preaching ministry was to announce the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what we're going to pick up again this morning. The fifth point, I'll just skip on ahead to it because it's easy to do. This event also featured miscellaneous demon expulsions. 
Main point five, this event also featured miscellaneous demon expulsions. I'm calling those MDEs for no better reason than we live in a culture that's filled with TLAs. You've heard that term before, have you not? I learned it myself two weeks ago. Cliff Beveridge taught me. We live in such a uh, society of TLAs, which stands for three-letter acronyms. In fact, TLA is a TLA. It is a three-letter acronym. So why not call these MDEs, miscellaneous demon expulsions? And this is really what uh, you might refer to as simply uh, just a no big deal. He's there to minister. While he's ministering, there happened to be demons there, so he drove them out. It wasn't the centerpiece of his ministry. It wasn't the driving attraction. He wasn't posting billboards up there that said, Come see Jesus. He casts out demons. No, he was coming to reveal the Father. He was coming to teach the Word of God. He was coming to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And when demoniacs happened to be around, he would remove those demons and give that demoniac a, a chance with uh, a cleared mind and a cleared soul to listen to the gospel and, by, and place their faith and their confidence in Jesus Christ. So we have it mentioned here in Matthew 4.24, also in Mark 1 and verse 39. And it almost just seems like it's in passing. As we read in verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. See, and it goes on. But backing up now to, uh, once again, to main point four, because there's five subpoints here where we ran out of time a week ago, and I really wanted to focus this hour to, to tie these loose ends together. And with uh, time permitting, um, I have a... a uh, journal article that I want to share that goes all the way back from 1955 uh, from the, the, the Bibsack Theological Journal of Dallas Seminary that I thought was very edifying and very fruitful. And if we have the time today, I'd like to spend uh, quite a bit of that reading that uh, article and going through it together with the scriptures. Um, point four again, the preaching ministry was to announce the gospel of the kingdom. As it says in Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now that's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And this is where we have to start to think along two tracks. I tried to explain that last week. When we think gospel, we're thinking salvation, right? That's just the first thing that pops into our mind. We have gospel. Oh, salvation. Somebody's believing in Jesus and now they're receiving eternal life. Right. That's their regeneration moment, their new birth moment when they're when they're transferred from darkness into light and they receive eternal life. We just simply call that that moment of regeneration. Okay, that's what runs through our minds in terms of gospel. Well, is that the same, though? We have to question, is that the same, though, when you attach an adjective on the end of it, such as of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom? And is that, in fact, a a witnessing event? taking unbelievers and, and converting them to Christ, or is this something else? Uh, and, and do we want to think of them as separate issues, or are they tied up one and the same? And I hope we'll be able to nail this down here today. In this case, it's called the gospel of the kingdom, gospel simply being good news. And obviously, when it's good news about eternal life, and it's good news about your sins forgiven, and it's good news about not going to hell, well then sure, we call that evangelism. And that's gospel uh, evangelism. But this is the gospel of the kingdom. And I hope we, uh, we can be clear on these matters. Subpoint A, we uh, highlighted the use of the term kingdom of God in the Luke reference, Luke 4.43, that this is, in fact, it, uh, not only... The gospel of the kingdom, if there was any question with respect to which kingdom might uh, be in view here, you know, it's not the, the kingdom of, of, uh, of Rome, it's not the kingdom of Persia, it's not the kingdom of England, it's the kingdom of God, according to uh, Luke 4 and verse 43, the parallel account that we've been uh, dealing with here over these past couple of weeks. Luke 4, 43, um, Crowds were searching for him, came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So the gospel of the kingdom is the good news concerning the kingdom of God. The gospel of God is the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's also recorded for us in the gospel of Mark. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, this is good news. That the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's good news for believers that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is not good news for unbelievers. All right. It's kind of like in Second Corinthians four, where it says, for even if our gospel is veiled, who is it veiled to? It is veiled to the perishing ones. See, now we are not the perishing ones. We are the living ones, the ones that have now received eternal life. Uh, but the gospel is good news as far as we're concerned. But to the one who keeps rejecting it, to the unbeliever who hardens his heart, who hates the, the, the ministry of reconciliation, who hates the work of Jesus Christ, who hates the free gift offer that the Father is making, uh, they don't consider that good news. In fact, the idea that their cosmos kingdom is passing away is very much sad news because that's where their allegiance lies. That's where their love is for. They hate the, dark, the light because they love the darkness. All right. So the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is good news. It is literally a gospel, but only to the regenerate who are going to be able to enter into the kingdom. Remember, only believers enter into the kingdom. Now, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And these, uh, these two sides of things is where I'm hoping that we can recognize that we have two tracks that we have to be keep, uh, keeping track of here. And repent is on the one side. And believe in the gospel is on the other side. All right. Two tracks. And I believe that both uh, both of these tracks are in view. And this this one you can think of in terms of uh, uh, in, in earthly realm. And this is one you think of in terms of the spiritual realm. They have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. All right. But so here he's talking to believers who already are saved and they need to repent. They need to adjust their thinking. They need to prepare themselves for the kingdom. Over here, he's talking to unbelievers. And what do they need? They need to get saved. Or they're not going to enter into the kingdom at all. All right? But believers who are so busy um, living in this world, we'll just call them worldly believers, some of whom started to adopt worldly methods in their business practices, in their course of life, whether they were soldiers or tax collectors or whatever they were, and they had very specific uh, recommendations that John the Baptist was making for them, saying, by the way, here's a, here's a course of action you uh, might want to consider. All right? So these two sides of the, of the uh, call is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Hopefully, if we can keep these tracks separated, we don't uh, we don't end up with some kind of a faulty uh, gospel call where we start talking to unbelievers and telling them you have to repent and believe. See, the people that unite those into their witnessing are really witnessing with a faulty, uh, a faulty gospel call. See, when it comes right down to it now. The king the uh, time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. And um, if you've not recently gone through the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter nine, I would recommend you to do that. Uh, we have taught it here before. We have notes printed and available, taught it recently at Horseshoe Bay. Those notes are available. But tracking the the uh, the years until that the culmination of God's plan for the nation of Israel is a vital part of Old Testament prophecy. And as the cross approached, week number 69 was coming to a close. And when week 69 comes to a close, Jesus Christ will, in fact, go to the cross. And then week number 70, tremendous national judgment for the nation of Israel. And all of this was prepared, was designed to prepare them to enter into the kingdom. All right. So this is really a critical moment that we're dealing with in the Gospels. When the baptizer said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it literally was. See, when Jesus Christ starts proclaiming the kingdom, such as we read about in, in the, all these chapters we're looking at, uh, it was really at hand. And I hope, maybe I'm redundant and uh, repetitive, but I hope that um, we can kind of, for the moment, ignore the church age. Might be hard for us to do because we've lived here all our lives, or at least 
all our redeemed lives, we've been in the church. All right. The church age began in 33 AD and continues on to this day. It's going to end with a rapture. We don't know when. But for the moment, for this study, at least for the time being, let's pretend we don't know anything about the church. The church is still a mystery. The church is not yet revealed. As far as Israel is concerned, they are observing Daniel's prophecy of those 70 weeks unfolding. And they are recognizing now that the forerunner, the herald, has come to make ready the ways of the Lord. And now the Lord has come. And so this kingdom is ready to go. All right. And while you're in the business of forgetting things, um, and if you successfully can forget the church, also successfully forget that Israel is going to reject their king and crucify him. All right. Let's just for the moment not know that they're going to reject their king. Let's assume maybe that they could accept their king, that here he is and they may humble themselves and they may accept their king. OK, and we know that they, they don't. <laughs> All right. But for this chapter, we don't we, we don't know that they don't know that the offer is being made of the kingdom. OK, we'll have more to say about that as well. The gospel of God is the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this good news is great news for believers uh, who are occupied with Christ, living and abiding in the word of God. Great news. It's not so great for the worldly believers who are regenerate but, and they'll, they'll have entrance into the kingdom, but their walk up until now has not been consistent with biblical teaching. All right. They need a change of thinking. They need to um, participate in John the Baptist water ritual baptism. They need to prepare themselves, uh, practically speaking, to enter into the kingdom. All right. And it's really not good news for the unregenerate. The unbeliever needs to accept Christ. The unbeliever needs to be born again or he won't enter into the kingdom at all. Now, under sub point B, and we'll have more to say about this. This is where we ended last week. The coming kingdom is the primary message of eschatology. Daniel 2. Also, we did not look at Daniel 7. We'll touch upon part of that chapter today as well. The coming kingdom is the primary message of eschatology. This coming kingdom. We're going to talk about how this kingdom message grew, how it came in limited forms through the Pentateuch, but how it grew through the kingdom era of Old Testament history, how it really grew in the prophetic books, and how it actually it exploded in the intertestamental literature. That after the, the prophetic books came to a close, during those 400 years of silence, uh, there was an explosion of uh, Jewish uh, apocalyptic traditions. There were a lot of apocryphal books that were written. There were a lot of uh, legends and dreams and things that the rabbis uh, came up with that were looking forward to the kingdom. So kingdom anticipation really was exploding during this time. And when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, there it is at an all-time high. So we'll talk about that as well. I mentioned briefly last week how it could be that um, what started off as the kinsman redeemer, what started off as the seed of the woman redeeming humanity and crushing the serpent's head and restoring the sinner to God, uh, how that wonderful message of hope kind of was sidelined. Or it started to become diminished as more and more people started to exalt this idea of the of the coming kingdom. See, when in reality, that never should have been diminished. That should have been just as upheld, even as the kingdom teaching came alongside. See, and but tragically, what happens is that this redemption message uh, of the seed of the woman and the deliverance from sin and the crushing of the serpent and all that, that really took a back seat. That really got minimized. All right. To this idea of the kingdom arising, see, and, and when in reality, both should have been upheld because this kingdom is going to be a kingdom of redeemed people. It's going to be a kingdom of believers. There's going to be no unbelievers to begin this kingdom. All right. And, and, and rather than being interested at all in crushing the serpent's head and being delivered from sins and being restored to righteousness, uh, they were really much more interested in crushing Rome. <laughs> right. And politically having their deliverance and dominating the Gentile nations. And and this idea of an earthly kingdom minus any kind of spiritual component was really the driving factor behind the zealots, the driving factor in, in Judas Iscariot's thinking and and much of what went involved in crucifying Jesus Christ. 
So we'll have more to say about that as well. As the as the kingdom emphasis increased, that redemption emphasis just disappeared. And even though, I mean, it was there for anyone who hungered after it, when when John said, behold, the Lamb of God, he didn't say the Lamb of God or the Lion of God who's going to conquer Rome. He said the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist had his priorities right. Peter and James and John listened to him, and, and the, the handful that did were, were still focused on redemption as opposed to kingdom. Now, we defined this last week as well. The word of the kingdom is the gospel of salvation with a kingdom of heaven focus. And for this, join me in Matthew 13. We're going to have some very thorough teaching coming up on all of these parables when we get to this point. And it's not far away. The uh, Matthew 13 is part of the Galilean ministry. The Matthew 13 kingdom of heaven parables is event 27 in the Galilean ministry. So we are in the Galilean ministry at this time and we have this teaching coming up. We have this word of the kingdom mentioned in verse 11 and in verse 19. The disciples were asking, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries, plural, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. And this is what's being discussed as seeds are being planted, as seeds are being sown. That's called the word of the kingdom. Okay, And that is a gospel message. That is a message of salvation, but with a kingdom of heaven focus. And that primarily is a Jewish focus. That primarily is one that we're going to see as far as evangelizing to a Jewish person is concerned, as opposed to a church age witnessing. See, our approach to the kingdom is different than the Jews approach to the kingdom was in the Old Testament times. And that should become clear as well. Um, When you lead somebody to Christ, for example, and the benefits and blessings they receive in terms of eternal life, in terms of a spiritual gift, in terms of uh, being a part of the bride, that is a, a totally different angle than what... Um, an Old Testament Jew would be looking forward to with the coming of the Christ because he was not going to become a part of the bride. He was going to become a part of the citizenry of, of Israel. He was going to be a, a member of, of the Jewish nation. He was going to have his tribe, whatever tribe he was from. He was going to be subject to the king, but not married to the king. All right. It's a big difference between uh, an Old Testament Jewish person getting saved, becoming a, a believing Jew before the cross. And now you and I saved as the bride of Christ after the cross. It's a huge difference. A difference between being a a um, a citizen subject to the king and a bride married to the king. It's massive. So let's look at it from the church's angle next under point D. Preaching the kingdom of God is an evangelism and edification message throughout the church age. Because this kingdom message didn't end with the Gospels. We have references in the book of Acts that describe the Apostle Paul and his ministry in the church age referencing the kingdom of God. We have it in Acts 20.25. We have it in Acts 28.31. Preaching the kingdom of God is an evangelism and edification message throughout the church age. But we're no longer preaching it from the angle, from a Jewish angle. We're no longer preaching it from the angle of a Jewish person who is going to be a part of this kingdom and having dominion over the Gentile nations. Now, the kingdom of God is proclaimed from a church angle. From the angle of the bride, from the queen on the throne next to the king, see, and that this is that the folks that are saved in our dispensation are a part of the uh, the body and bride of Christ. It's a big difference. So let's look at these two places here in the book of Acts, starting with Acts 20, very important chapter, and. Uh, And then concluding with the final chapter, Acts 28. I mean, you can almost think about, imagine, um, 
imagine, uh, and it's kind of hard to imagine now because we've mapped the entire globe, but imagine that uh, a lost continent is found. It's never been discovered before, right? And this new continent uh, is going to be colonized. We're, we're getting people together now that can leave their country. You, can, you know, you can leave Texas and... Uh, <gasps> It's kind of shocking words for some folks. You can leave Texas and you can immigrate to this new land, this new world. Maybe, maybe when we start colonizing Mars or something, you know, and they're going to take volunteers. And you can go to this new land and you can become uh, a citizen of this new country right from, the, right from the start. You know, a brand new citizen of, in a country just getting started. Okay? Well, there's a huge difference between being a citizen of this new kingdom or being interviewed or accepted in a position of not just simply a citizen of that kingdom, but actually saying, okay, we're going to make you a ruler of this new kingdom, see? Because the, that's what the bride of Christ is, reigning with Christ. As he is seated at his father's right hand, we're seated at his right hand, see? And, and that's really, when you think of the gospel message to the Jew, a, a Jewish person uh, before the cross, looking forward to the kingdom, they're looking forward to entering into that kingdom as citizens from Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, Dan, Issachar, Judah, Benjamin, whatever their tribe is. They're going to be citizens underneath their king, Jesus Christ, on the throne of David. Okay, But for us looking back to the cross, we're not going to be Jewish citizens. We're going to be resurrected, glorified, the bride of Christ. We're going to be reigning with Christ. Okay? I cannot emphasize that enough. Now, in Acts chapter 20, here is Paul, and Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows that he's going to get arrested there, and uh, he's willing to face that. Whatever else has to happen is going to happen. He's not worried about it. He's going to face it on the basis of faith, even when uh, other believers are telling him that he's making a mistake. And um, he can't actually take the time to go all the way into Ephesus, so he stops at the port city here of Miletus, in verse 17, and he brings the pastors to him. He sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders, notice plural elders, of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, and he goes to give them a, a kind of a, a recap of the three-year ministry that he had here in, uh, in Asia, in, particularly in Ephesus. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. wonder why that was. Well, it's because it's called the ministry. <laughs> you know, tough things happen. With tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. See, that's unusual today. Most pastors will shrink from declaring things that aren't popular. <laughs> but you'll notice the word here isn't popular. The word here is profitable. See, and it all profits, especially the tough messages, the unpopular messages that truly edify. So I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. That is such an amazing verse. Teaching you publicly. All right, we recognize that. That's the public ministry. That's the, the local assemblies. That's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night. We're teaching publicly. Here we are in the gathering of the, of the saints. We're told not to neglect that, the assembling of ourselves together. But in addition to teaching publicly, there's also from house to house. And uh, here comes the additional shepherding ministry that takes place in between Sundays and Wednesdays, and this is uh, the pastor that's willing to uh, shepherd his flock and meet with uh, couples and, and encourage uh, struggling believers and all the things that happens there. Um, I've known pastors in the past that refuse to do any of that. They say, no, 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 everything is all in the assembly. Everything is all in the pulpit. And that's where you get all your shepherding. And that's, you know, if they, if they need more shepherding, then they need to come to more Bible classes. Well, this verse has both sides of the issue. It has the public side, but it also has from house to house. And I've really been convicted of that for a number of years now. Now, verse 21, it goes on. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... Bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. It's the glorious thing about faith rest. See, because we just don't know. But God does. He's in charge, so I'm relaxed about it. 
except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Do you see that? This is what he's preaching, the gospel of the grace of God. And look how he defines it in verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So in verse 24, it's called the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 25, it's called the kingdom. So we still have a kingdom angle that we proclaim today. It's not as emphasized as it would be to a first century Jewish believer, but it still is appropriate to be referencing the kingdom. Specifically, though, we've got to be clear. We're not preaching the Davidic kingdom. We're preaching the kingdom of God. We're preaching the kingdom of heaven. See, and we're not preaching it as citizens subject to the Davidic throne. We're teaching it as the bride of Christ seated on the Davidic throne, as it were, at the right hand of our Savior. Huge difference. Okay? And I think that this distinction is one that is um, really behind the, the tragic departure that Dallas Seminary made about 10 years ago when they started to modify their dispensationalism, when they went to this progressive dispensational approach. They started to confuse the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father with the Davidic throne. And you can't do that. Scripture doesn't do that. So when we do that, we're merging seats, see, and Scripture doesn't do that. All right. So in verse 24, it's called the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 25, it's called the kingdom. It's called the kingdom. Now, if all we do is think in political terms and we never lead anybody to Christ, where are we? <laughs> all right. A lot, a lot of... Um, Secular crusading that takes place today, some secular political crusading where believers get confused and think that political activism is the equivalent of the Christian way of life. See, proclaiming the kingdom, sure, but what does that mean? Proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God. That's what it means. And the kingdom will come about when the Father determines to send the Son and then will depart the church age and proceed on to the eschatological events. All right, over in chapter 28. You know, I think uh, if, we're look, if we're looking for and hastening the uh, coming of the Lord, we'll do that much more effectively through evangelism <laughs> than we will through political activism. All right? And instead of trying to bring in perfect government on earth, that's not going to happen until Jesus Christ returns. You know, in, in many ways, the founding fathers were guilty of a lot of um, things, a lot of uh, dreams about this new world and then their, their visions of Zion and their visions of, of other things. Um, but that phrase, a more perfect union, is, is, in my mind, extraordinary. Because they realize it's not the perfect union. It's not the perfect nation. It's, they're just making an effort to bring in something more perfect <laughs> until Jesus Christ does return. He will undoubtedly, you know, clearly bring in the perfect union. The final chapter in the book of Acts, the final verse in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul is now in prison in Rome, and it says uh, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So during the two years that he was waiting for his trial, his appeal before Caesar, he had the opportunity to live in his own rented quarters, to have a ministry, an active ministry of the word of God, where he was able to write books such as Ephesians and Colossians and, and uh, Philippians and Philemon. Uh, preaching, notice, the kingdom of God. That is still acceptable for us as we give the gospel. We are giving the gospel, and, and when you see somebody saved, what have you just done? You have just brought somebody into the kingdom. Say, but it's the kingdom of God. Not the Davidic kingdom. The kingdom of God. Okay? So, that's the church age. Now, we've seen 
John the Baptist proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We've seen Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel of kingdom. That was all in the Old Testament before the cross. Here now we've seen Paul proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is in the church age after the cross. Still yet future after the rapture. Subpoint E. The gospel of the kingdom will be the primary evangelism message of the great tribulation. The gospel of the kingdom will be the primary evangelism message of the great tribulation. Matthew 24 and verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be the primary evangelism message of the great tribulation. Matthew 24:14. Join me in Matthew 24. Some people try to inject this into the church. You got to keep it where it belongs. Matthew 24:14. All right. The um, description of the end times, the description of the destruction of the temple, starting here in chapter 24. Um, The disciples are pointing out the temple buildings to him. He said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And this takes a lot of work. And the answer to these three questions comes not only in Matthew 24, but you also have to bring in the Luke parallel account and you get the answer to all three of these questions. But let's just take it up where we are today. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. This kind of teaching is ripe for false teaching. So you have to be careful and not be misled. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, will mislead many. Now, again, ignore the church. We don't know there's coming a church. These are Jewish believers before the cross looking forward to this coming kingdom. And this has to be the context for how these answers are given. Not in a church context, but in an Israel context looking for the uh, establishment of the kingdom. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes and, dare we say, hurricanes and flooded cities and things like that. All right? And, but these are the, merely the beginnings of birth pangs. See, all of that is just simply a reminder that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's been cursed. We live in a world that needs to be uh, restored back to the conditions that it had prior to the curse. Verse 9, they will deliver you to tribulation. Now, who is that? That's, again, Israel. Some people try to put the church into here. They will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. This is going to be the worldwide rejection of the nation of Israel, hating the Jewish people. And that time, many will fall away, will betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, will mislead many. Many false, uh, verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Okay? Now, this is not for the church. This is the great tribulation. All right? This is, as we understand it, seven years. We know that it's going to be a seven-year period of time. It's going to have a three-and-a-half-year span where Antichrist guarantees their peace. He breaks that. And then we have this three-and-a-half-year span called the Great Tribulation. This whole calendar is all worked out in advance. We even know that these years are 360-day years rather than uh, the 365.24222 whatever solar years that we use today in the Gregorian Roman calendar. All right, So we know. We can count these days. We can count these seven years. We know that it's going to end when Jesus Christ comes in Armageddon. That's why it says, endure to the end. Okay? Because you can count this. You can mark your calendar. We know. And even then, there's going to be a bit of a surprise because um, His star will appear in the sky and uh, those days actually get cut short. He comes early. He comes as a thief. Even before the full number of these days were done. Now, that's why it says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Some 
pathetic people try to say, well, that means you can lose your salvation, right? Because they put that back into the church age and say, see, if you don't endure to the end, you won't be saved. And they kind of use this as an excuse to say, this verse says you can lose your salvation, which is total garbage. They're just ignoring the full message of what chapter 24 is. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, you understand why the book of Daniel is so important to study, both for Jewish eschatology and indeed for uh, all eschatology, for church age believers as well. So you've got to flee. So this is the context now as this is uh, taking place. But now notice in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So here's the primary evangelistic message of the uh, tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom. Now think about it, when we give the witness, when, we, when we're witnessing today, uh, we're not proclaiming, we, we do in a way have a sense of imminency, but it's not the second advent, it's, what is it? It's the rapture. Say, when you're leading somebody to Christ and they say, well, you know, yeah, I've heard about that. I'll think about it, or maybe later I'll worry about it. Well, how much time do you think you have? See, because I'm waiting to hear a trumpet. And if I would have heard the trumpet last night, I wouldn't have been here this morning to tell you what I'm telling you right now. So you might think about what you're hearing and take action, because I may not be here tomorrow to tell you this story another time. All right? How long are you going to wait? One of the hymns we have coming up in uh, September addresses that. Why do you wait? You know, you may not have much longer. See. All right. It's going to be the primary message throughout the tribulation. All right. We have. uh, Before I go to this journal article, do we have any questions? I'm going to read some uh, material out of the journal article for you this morning about the kingdom, about the Jewish anticipation of this coming king, this coming kingdom. David or Michael. Yeah, as far as repent, change your thinking. Yes, it would be it would be a return back to a life of righteousness cons- uh, consistent with what has been revealed to them. At that time, it was the law. Uh, in the millennial kingdom, in fact, it will be called kingdom law, and that's where we have the great charter of kingdom law in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll deal with that Matthew five, six, and seven, where not only is it thou shalt not commit adultery, but under kingdom law, the omniscient king on the throne is going to tell you that even your very thoughts are going to now be held accountable. That when you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Kingdom law. If you thought if you thought Mosaic law was impossible to keep, <laughs> kingdom law. Once you throw a Sermon on the Mount in there and you start putting mental attitudes as well as deeds into the mix, that's going to be something else as well. So, um, there's yes, there's, there's work to be done on kingdom law in the millennium because it's also post-cross and so it's also an age of grace. But a kingdom law will be the standard of righteousness for daily life in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's what John the Baptizer was telling him. You've got you to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. So, yes, back to the law, but not the Pharisees perversion of it, but to God's reality of it and why why the law was given in the first place. Okay, great question. Anything else? Let's uh, look at this journal article. Uh, As I said, this was written in the uh, Bibsack journal. Bibliotheca Sacra, Volume 112. This was the um, uh, Theological Journal of Dallas Theological Seminary. This particular article goes back to, I believe it's April of uh, 1955. Part two of a four-part series. I'm just, I'm not going to read all of it, but just clips from this part by Alva J. McLean. 
called the Mediatorial Kingdom in Old Testament Prophecy because it's really a good survey of the Old Testament prophecies that were looking forward to this coming kingdom. And this is what would be on the hearts of the Jewish people as John the Baptist arises and says, all right, the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus Christ comes and says, the kingdom is at hand. And the herald says, behold, here's your king and, uh, and these things. Now, uh, the nature of kingdom prophecy, this is kind of introductory material. Um, and, and really helps to describe some of the aspects of it. Interpretation of kingdom prophecy, very important. Uh, nothing new to you here. Uh, we're going to interpret literally that when, uh, when the Bible says something, we're going to believe it. We're not going to figuratize anything or take anything allegorically or, or view it as being symbolic of anything because everything that was fulfilled in the first advent was fulfilled literally, Right. When it says a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, lo and behold, guess what? That's what happened. A virgin had a baby, and that was Jesus Christ in the manger. And so uh, we realize that becomes our, our biggest clue to understand how the remainder of these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. See, uh, we have this wonderful perspective because we're in between the two advents. And we can look back to first advent and say, wow, look at that. Born in, a, in, in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born of the seed of David, and all these hundreds of prophecies fulfilled literally. Out of Egypt I will call my son. All of these things in first advent were fulfilled literally. Okay? So now we, we, took, we look to these second advent prophecies, the ones that are still future, still pending, still imminent. All right? How are they going to be fulfilled? Well, they're going to be fulfilled literally. Jesus Christ will return. He will stand on the Mount of Olives. He will defeat Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. He will establish the Davidic throne. And we take that all literally because that's how the first Advent prophecies were taken. And to do so any other way is uh, destructive to the very texts in which these, uh, these prophecies were given. All right. We'll pick up our reading here in the extent of kingdom prophecy. In a very real sense, all messianic prophecy in the Old Testament is kingdom prophecy. Even those predictions which deal with Messiah's humiliation and sufferings cannot be separated from the context of regal glory. As Archibald McCaig has rightfully observed concerning the great prophetic period in Old Testament history, the prophecies all more or less have a regal tint and the coming one is preeminently the coming king. All right. And that's in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. In fact, we have a copy of it over here in our church library. Generally, we may say that the Old Testament prophecy of the future mediatorial kingdom of God begins with a few scattered references in the Pentateuch, opens up clearly in the records of the historical kingdom, David and Solomon and their descendants, okay, grows in volume and brilliance as the historical kingdom declines, that's all the, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all right, Zechariah. And uh, comes to its close in Malachi. So, uh, and, and that matches what we were talking about where in the early revelations, the coming of the anointed one was highlighting uh, the deliverance from sin, was highlighting the crushing of the serpent's head, was highlighting the, uh, the redemption ministry. And then as it started to grow into the political realm with the establishment of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the nation of Israel, with the exaltation of Judah as the uh, tribe with a scepter, the ruling tribe, with the exaltation of the Davidic throne. See, now all of a sudden, in, in addition to the, uh, the, the uh, redemption uh, anticipation, now there comes a kingdom anticipation right alongside with it. And as this one started to get more and more emphasized, the, the idea of redemption and sin and deliverance and all that started to be minimized, which was a problem. As it says here, uh, uh, grows in volume and brilliance as the historical kingdom declines. And so there's all your prophet ministries, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, and so forth, Zechariah. This material is so extensive that no attempt can be made in these lectures to present an exhaustive list of references, nor shall I try to deal with the ideas in the order of their historical utterance. I can only set forth in very much condensed form a series of generalizations supported by, uh, supported by uh, selected but representative material from the inspired text as time permits. The question before us is, therefore, what do the Old Testament prophets say about the future kingdom? 
And that's a huge question. It's an important question because that question directly bears on our studies in the, in the life of Christ. What do the Old Testament prophets say about their future kingdom? Because that's going to be the mindset of this audience when John the Baptist says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whether their conception is identical or not with the kingdom announced in the gospel records is a question to be dealt with in a later lecture. And that is a legitimate question as well. What was then different with Jesus Christ and the apostles that was not necessarily uh, laid out in, uh, in the Old Testament prophets? The literality of the coming kingdom. The kingdom of the Old Testament prophets is not merely an ideal kingdom. See, it's not merely some utopia that we'd love to see someday but we know never will happen right well no this is a literal kingdom it is going to happen he's promised it he's guaranteed it he even has given us a calendar in which that kingdom will arrive um like the kantian kingdom of ends something toward which man must ever strive and never attain on the contrary it will be as real and literal in the sen- in the realm of sense experienced as the historical kingdom of israel or the kingdom of great britain today All prophecy from first to last asserts and implies this literality in such details as, and you will notice now, its ruler. And here's the advantage of having an electronic text rather than a, uh, a paper text, is you can just simply click your links and look at the verses. Its ruler. He's described in Isaiah 33, 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Its geographical location, described in Isaiah 14, 1 and 2. Its citizens are described in Jeremiah 23, verses 3 through 6. Its capital city is spotlighted there in Isaiah 2, 5. The nations involved are highlighted in Isaiah 11, 11. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You will notice this is entirely oriented towards gathering the Jewish people out of the Gentile nations and establishing them in a Jewish kingdom under the Davidic throne in the millennial kingdom of of Jesus Christ. So it's going to be a literal kingdom. When we have prophecies that outline the ruler, the location, the citizens, the capital, the nations involved, numerous other details which uh, will appear in the progress of this study. Worthy of special notice here is the fact that the prophets picture the coming kingdom as one which will destroy and supplant other kingdoms which are literal. And we looked at Daniel 2 last week, and it also is paralleled in Daniel chapter 7. Remember, Babylon is going to give way to Persia. Persia is going to give way to Greece. Greece is going to give way to Rome. And the entire Roman history of, of Western civilization has been the, the heritage of Rome ever since the fall, say, the fall of Rome. And that's going to be replaced. That entire cosmos system is going to be replaced by the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Those were literal kingdoms. Babylon really existed. Persia really existed, right? Greece really existed. Rome really existed. We still have the remnants of Rome to this day. And so this coming kingdom is going to be a literal kingdom. Every Old Testament prophecy demands that. All right? It's only Roman theology that rejects that. Right? That says, no, no, that's kind of metaphoric. And it's, the kingdom is not going to be a literal kingdom. It's going to be symbolic and it's going to be metaphoric. It's going to be in the church and the Pope is in charge of all that and, and all this other stuff. And Christ isn't really returning. We have the, the, the vicar of Christ and it's all very figurative. That's why they're not looking for a rapture. They're not looking for a second advent. They're not looking for a kingdom. In fact, God has totally scrapped the Jewish people. Okay? Because under Roman theology now, it's all in the Catholic Church. Okay? And... Various Protestant denominations have similar themes when they're not looking for raptures either. The divine kingdom does indeed come down from heaven, but the arena of action is on earth where the heavenly kingdom supplants literal kingdoms and functions in their stead. See, it is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a huge difference because our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, And that's a difference between Israel and the church. 
There is no place left for any unfilled vacuum in human history. Furthermore, the prophets insist that the coming kingdom will actually be a revival and restoration of the Old Testament kingdom of history. The former dominion shall be returned to the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Micah 4, verse 1, verse 7, and verse 8. It's going to be the restoration of the Davidic throne. That throne that, by the way, has not had a son of David seated on it since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Even when they were allowed to return, even when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah led returns back to Jerusalem, they did not reseat a Davidic heir on that Davidic throne. They have not had a Davidic son on the throne since uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And they won't until Jesus Christ returns because the, the timeline has been fixed. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Jesus Christ, the kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen, shall again be raised up by divine power as in the days of old. Amos 9.11. Remember Amos? Amos was famous. We were talking about Amos in our family devotions the other morning. All right. The fallen booth of David. It's going to be restored as in the days of old. In all these and a thousand other details, there is un the unmistakable flavor of literality. And then... Uh, Man, then it goes on. Other terms here. Now, the future establishment of the kingdom is this next heading. When is it going to be? Well, Haggai says it's going to be in a little while. Isaiah says a very little while. Other predictions indicate that the kingdom is far off in the future. After a lapse of many days, it says in Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5. Or the latter days, it says in Isaiah 2, 2. Doubtless the reconciliation of these forecasts may be found in the divine mind to which our many days are only a very little while. <laughs> I mean, what did he say when he closed the book of Revelation? He says, behold, I come quickly. Hello, it's been 2000 years. All right. But with the Lord, that's only been a couple of days, right? The establishment of the kingdom is always preceded by divine judgments. There will be a worldwide military preparation and devastating wars among the nations. This is why, again, the church has no part in this. This is the, the worldwide judgment on Israel to prepare them for their king, to prepare them for their exaltation. And it's also judgment upon the Gentile nations for what they've been doing to Israel in all these years. Joel 3, verses 9 through 16, Isaiah 3. Great cosmic disturbances affecting the heavenly bodies in Joel 2, 30 and 31. A special judgment upon the nation of Israel, which will be, which will attend their regathering back into the land of the promised kingdom. And boy, we taught this at length in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 20, that they have to be judged just as sheep and goat judgments is going to judge the Gentile nations. This special wilderness judgment of Israel will separate the believers from the unbelievers. And just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're coming into this kingdom. If you're not born again, they're being thrown into hell. Only regenerate individuals will pass from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 20, verse 35, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. It says in verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. Against me. The unbelievers will be purged. Uh, more of these divine judgments, other information here, world-shaking event. Okay, the ruler of this future kingdom. The names and titles applied to the coming king indicate that he will be both human and divine in nature. He is called a man in Isaiah 32, 1 and 2. One like unto a son of man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And it was this son of man title that so enraged the Pharisees, so enraged them, uh, they didn't like son of God either. <laughs> you know, they couldn't deny that he was son of David. But when he started taking the son of man title, that was hitting too close in Daniel 7, as in the one that this kingdom is going to be handed to by the Ancient of Days. Again, I recommend you to the Daniel material we recently, uh, we recently published. The son of God in, Daniel, in Psalm 2 and verse 7. He's the son here. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We've been hitting that passage a lot. 
called the rod of the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1, 1, a righteous branch of David, Jeremiah 23.5, God and the Lord Jehovah, and Isaiah 40, verses 9 and 10. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. These are some of their anticipated titles for their coming king. And by the way, this, um, this is the one that really has folks dancing. Let me switch colors. This eternal father. They say, I know God the Father is the Father. What about God the Son? How does God the Son take the title Everlasting Father, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace? I love the Prince of Peace part. What about that Eternal Father part? Okay, That's why you have to have a fullness of time on the end of your millennium to recognize what the Eternal Father dispensation is all about. So stay tuned for information on that coming up in Paterological Paternity and Purpose this evening. Oh, goodness, out of time. Um... Okay, we'll um, do some more of this next week and we'll move on to Matthew chapter 8 because we have a leper that's going to get healed. In Matthew chapter 8, he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And um, Jesus is going to heal him. And we'll talk about some of those issues there. We're going to move on through number 8, number 9, number 10. A lot of these Galilean events are going to go very quickly. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this time. We've run out of it. It's short, but we thank you that by your grace we can redeem the time for the days are evil. I pray, Father, as we move forward that we might constantly dwell upon your truth and be nourished by the feeding value of your word in our soul. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.